Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue in our sermon series from the book of Matthew. As Jesus reveals himself more and more to his disciples from the moment they stepped foot in Caesarea Philippi. It's been one divine disclosure after another. As the Father opened the eyes and ears of these apostles, they were finally able to recognize the fact that uh, this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what exactly did that mean? Would he pursue a political agenda? Rally an army of rebels, overthrow their oppressors with the sword? I mean, that's what they wanted. And that's what they expected. Is that the kind of Christ who stood there in their midst? Well, not in the slightest. No, while the disciples were fashioning a Christ in their own image, Jesus explains the nature of his Messiahship and what it truly means to follow. And it's not at all what they think. For as he goes on to tell them, the real Christ Jesus is a suffering Christ facing certain execution in the holy city of Jerusalem. He's an unshakable Christ, steadfast and determined to accomplish God's will over man's. He's a costly Christ, whose followers must be willing to lay down their lives for his sake. And he is a just Christ, who will repay each man according to his deeds when he calls the whole world to account. As Jesus stood before the twelve in Caesarea, he showed them exactly who he was. And though his self-disclosure seems fairly complete at that point, well, there was still more to reveal. And so he called his three closest followers, Peter, James, and John, to the top of Mount Hermon for a glimpse of the splendor, the magnificence, and the holiness that had been veiled to this point by his human flesh. That flesh that Christ took on at the time of his incarnation, it didn't rid him of his godly attributes, as some would suppose. Like his deity was compromised in that moment, it was not. But rather, that deity was just concealed. Concealed from the eyes of the beholden. So even though Peter, James, and John knew that Jesus was the Christ by way of their confession, until that great transfiguration, they didn't know just how glorious a Christ he was. That's what happened as Jesus transfigured before them. He changed not who he was, but how he was seen. And the picture put the onlooking disciples 
face down on the ground in a posture of reverence, awe, and worship. That's how these closest three responded. Well, atop the mountain. But what about the other nine? What were they doing? Well, Jesus was displaying the fullness of his majesty. Well, they were struggling with doubts, failures, and unbelief down in the valley. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 17. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 14. Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? He said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. May God bless the reading of his word. Seems to me there is only one other place in all of Scripture where we see a contrast so great as we have here. And like this occasion, it too involved a mountain high and a valley low. I'm referring, of course, to Moses' venture atop Mount Sinai, where after conversing with the Almighty, after receiving divine personal revelation, after seeing God's glory on display like never before, well, we're told in Exodus chapter 32 that Moses then turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the sound of the people below as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. Moses said, it's not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. 
And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they made, burned it with fire, ground it into powder, and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink. Moses' transcendent experience atop the mountain was quickly eclipsed when he came down it as he was once again surrounded by the faithlessness and perversion of a people whose belief in the Lord proved far too shaky to survive without him in their midst. And from that standpoint, well, it seems not a whole lot has changed in this here valley. As Jesus, Peter, James, and John descend from glory to the normalcy of life, they too must deal with a faithless and perverted generation who forget their God the moment he leaves their sight. And that's not just true of the average Joe who was in the crowd that day. It's true for at least nine-twelfths of the apostles who followed Christ Jesus for almost three whole years. Well, friends, that ought to tell us something about our walk of faith. It's long and it's hard and it takes a spirit-driven perseverance to finish well. Huh? As this transfigured party joins the rest of their group, they find the other disciples in a pretty serious faith struggle. And my hope as we consider this morning's text is that we will learn as much about our shortcomings in this arena as they did theirs. First, as we realize in verses 14 through 17, we don't believe enough in Christ's power. When they came back to the crowd after coming down the mountain, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and is very ill. He often falls into the fire, often into the water. I brought him to your disciples while you were away, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Now, while the, some of the group accompanied Christ to the top of Mount Hermon to behold his glory, we've lost sight momentarily of these other nine who were left to fend for themselves during their time of waiting. And other than missing out on the transfiguration itself, this really might not have been that bad a deal. I mean, after all, they've been traveling for some time now. They were far away from home. They're constantly being challenged by Christ's teaching and by others from the outside. A little downtime might serve them well. And yet they didn't get much of a chance to enjoy that downtime. Because as people began to recognize that they were representatives of this man, Jesus, 
Well, the crowds gathered round them as they had before. With all their intrigue, all their interest, and all their demands. It would seem, in spite of the fact that Christ was not with them on this occasion, the request for miracles did not subside. In fact, given how this scene played out, it seems that the pressures to perform were at an all-time high for these apostles. According to Mark's extended version of these events, the Jewish scribes had come to the disciples here to argue against their position, while the crowds had come after the disciples in search of a sign. And so immediately following his descent, Christ cuts through this swarm of people as if to say, what in the world has been going on? Well, at that, there was silence. The disputes stopped. The commotion became still until one man made his approach. Until one man cried out in desperation, Lord, please. Mercy on my son. He's suffering terribly. He's a lunatic, as they say, falling into the fire, falling into the water. That translation, lunatic, is accurate, but it may not give us the best picture of what exactly is this boy's condition. Turns out he wasn't suffering from an illness per se, but he was, as they would say, moonstruck, that is, possessed by a spiritual power. Not the result of epilepsy, as some versions have rendered it, but the result of demonic possession. The parallel accounts help to spell that out, that the child was, in fact, possessed with a spirit which made him mute, It seized upon him, slammed him to the ground. He foams at the mouth as a result, grinds his teeth, and becomes stiff like a board. So the father comes to Jesus. Says, Lord, teacher, healer, I need your help. I mean, this is my son. And the demon that grips him is literally tearing my boy limb from limb. That's where this man finds himself now that Jesus has returned from the Mount of Transfiguration. But as we learn, this is not the first time this man asked for help. Huh? No doubt, when he made his way to the base of Mount Hermon, He came looking specifically for the one they call the Christ. But when he arrived with his demon-possessed boy in tow, Jesus wasn't there. So what do you do as a parent when your child's life is on the line? You go in search of the next best thing. Someone who knows Jesus. Someone who claims the power of Jesus. Someone who has experienced this kind of thing before. 
Father says, because I couldn't find you, Lord, I brought my boy to your disciples. But they could not cure him. In the original language, that phrase tells us that from the father's perspective, the disciples had not the strength to prevail against this demon. Now that's interesting. Because if you remember, just a few chapters earlier, in chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority from the Greek word exousia, meaning power, strength, dominion, for precisely this purpose. To cast out unclean spirits and to heal every kind of disease and cure every kind of sickness. And as we're told in several other places in Scripture, the disciples were able to cast out many of these demons without Jesus looking over their shoulder. They were anointing many sick people with oil and bringing healing to them all. So either the strength that Christ gave them to battle demons was temporary and was lost somewhere in these seven chapters, or strength isn't really their problem. Jesus seems to indicate the latter as he cries out in disappointment and frustration, Oh, you unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? He doesn't come down on them because they lacked ability. His disappointment comes because theirs was a lack of belief. You just got done telling me that I am the Christ. And the first chance you get to show the world what the power of Christ can do, you doubt it. You distort it. And because you do not fully believe, you failed to display it. And that isn't just an apostle in the first century problem. This is a church in the 21st century problem as well. We don't believe enough in the power of Christ. That's why we're scared to share the gospel. Because we don't believe enough in Christ's power to change lives. That's why we're reluctant to give to the church. Because we don't believe enough in Christ's power to make provision. That's why we're cautious about taking our burdens to the cross. Because we don't believe enough in Christ's power to forgive. These are the real frustrations of Jesus' life. At the very people who said they believed with all their heart just showed him something vastly different the moment he stepped away from them.
So I have to ask then, what are you showing him? And not does your mouth say, I believe. Does your life say it? Or would he look at you as he did these disciples with disappointment, wondering how long must he put up with you? Huh? Like the apostles of old, we don't believe enough in Christ's power. Nor do we marvel enough at Christ's power when we see it on display. Uh, Take a look at verse 18. Frustrated by their wholesale lack of faith in this matter, Jesus says, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Not only does Jesus have what it takes to be rid of this evil spirit, his authority is enough to keep that spirit out for good. And it happens without a whole lot of fanfare. I mean, is this not the most matter-of-fact statement that you've ever read? I mean, here's Christ expelling a demon that has proven too stubborn for any of the leaders of Judaism, too strong for the nine apostles, and Jesus sends him packing just like that. And we get hardly a sentence. I mean, that is the power of Christ. That at his word, stuff happens. Because he has mastery over everything in the created world. Whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Including in the realm of the demonic. Which means these created nefarious but inferior beings must obey his command. It's not optional. It's not up for debate. The Lord speaks and the spirits listen because they have no choice but to do so. That's why Jesus is able to perform these miracles with such ease And why Matthew records it so easily. But is it possible that over time, the routine nature of Christ's healings and exorcisms has lessened their wonder in our minds? Is it possible after reading the fifth, the tenth, the eighteenth one of these, We have become desensitized to their impact. I mean, Jesus just stepped in and did with a word what no one on planet Earth could accomplish. And I did not hear one gasp from this congregation. We barely paused to take it in. How is it that we can read these things 
We see Christ's handiwork. We can recognize what he's capable of. And we don't step back and appreciate it. Perhaps we have allowed familiarity to rob these things of their wonder. We should be awestruck. Huh? By these incredible, miraculous, Christ-exalting events, we should be awestruck. In fact, in the parallel account of Luke, we read about a people who saw this Jesus and they were astounded at what was done. Amazed at the greatness of God, as we're told in Luke chapter 9, verse 43. Amazed at the greatness of God. Does that describe us? Amazed at the greatness of God. Man, we ought to worship like that ourselves, no? When we're gathered here in this building and all throughout the week. Now, one of the cool parts about parenting is you have the opportunity to experience things you've seen a hundred times brand new as you see them through the eyes of your children. Many of you know what that's about. See, to children, everything's big, everything's exciting, everything's new. Remember when my kids were younger, I took them on a field trip to the Philadelphia Zoo. And we're going into the big cat exhibit. And their eyes are about this big, right? Man, this is amazing. It's incredible. There I am lagging behind. Because, yeah, that's kind of neat, but I've seen a bunch of tigers before. And I wonder in that if a lot of us don't approach God like the disinterested adult at the zoo. Yeah, I mean, God's good, but I've been around. (laughs) There's nothing much new to see here. What does scripture call us to? Faith like a child. Where every morning I wake up and my eyes are about this big. At the greatness and glory of our God. The thought of God's presence. That should be our response. And we can't press our faces up against the glass fast enough to take in more. Yeah? We don't believe enough in Christ's power. We don't marvel enough at Christ's power. And we don't appeal enough to Christ's power. We have that in common with the apostles, it seems. Take a look at verse 19. After all of this played out, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive the demon out? Jesus said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed even, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. 
that Jesus' ability to drive the demon out with such incredible ease caused the disciples to wonder what they did wrong when attempting that same exorcism. After all, Christ had given them the power to cast out demons, and they'd been able to demonstrate that power on a number of occasions before. What went wrong this time? Well, listen to the way they framed their question. Why could we not drive it out? That's what they came asking. And it tells us how they presumed to accomplish this supernatural task. We'll do what we did before, and we'll get the same results from it. But Scripture tells us quite clearly that apart from Christ and faith in him, we can do nothing. And that's where the nine apostles in the valley of Mount Hermon went wrong. They had forgotten from whence their power would come. They forgot on whom they must rely for these incredible miracles. Jesus says to them, yours was not a lack of ability. It was not a lack of strength. It was not a lack of know-how. Your failure with the boy and his demon rests squarely on your lack of faith. Of course, they had a certain measure of it, right? Enough to profess Jesus as the Christ. But the little faith that they had, it was fragile. It was weak. It was mixed with all sorts of doubts and uncertainties. Just like mine, oftentimes. And like yours. See, we talk about faith as the means through which one obtains salvation. And that's true. But in the same way the spiritual life must be received by faith, so also must it be lived by faith. Not in our own intellect or abilities, but in the power of Christ which makes all things possible in the working out of God's will. It makes all things possible in the working out of God's will, no matter how big the mountain. In fact, Jesus mentions that very thing to his disciples. The ability for the possessor of faith to move mountains. Now, you have to understand, Christ was not talking about moving a literal mountain mountain when he says this neither the apostles nor the lord himself ever accomplished such a feat on the earth it would be pointless for them to have done so no the expression able to move mountains was a common figure of speech in their day representing the ability to overcome the greatest of obstacles as william barclay observed faith in god is the instrument that allows men to remove the hills of difficulty which block their path. 
And how do we demonstrate that faith? How do we show our complete reliance and dependence and trust in the Lord? That he might accomplish his powerful work in and through us. Well, we do that most notably as we pray. That's what Jesus is quoted as saying in verse 21 of our text. And we find that in brackets because the phrase was not found in the best manuscripts of Matthew's gospel. But that does not make it uh, disingenuous. Because we do find this said in the parallel account of Mark chapter 9, verse 29. It was likely borrowed from there. He says, this kind cannot come out by by anything but prayer. The additional note on fasting is most certainly an addition to the original text. Uh, we don't believe that Jesus ever actually said that on this occasion, so we'll not discuss it in our exposition here. The emphasis clearly is on prayer. Because whenever we take to this kind of battle, and it is a spiritual battle, well, to go in our own strength, in our own pride, in our own self-sufficiency is to have lost the battle before it even begins. For these types of challenges, one theologian contends, we must rely not on our own strength, but entirely and completely on God's strength. And we express that dependence most perfectly in prayer. Not that prayer is some magic potion. Not that prayer has any power in and of itself. Prayer is an appeal made to the Lord that he would redeem, that he would forgive, that he would cast out the demon and move the mountain from here to there, knowing we are not good enough or holy enough on our own to do so. And we have to understand, and my hope is we can begin to progress beyond this. We have a certain idea of what prayer sounds like coming out of our mouths. And for many of us, it is, dear God, bless my family and help us all to have a good day. And that is fine. It's fine for our infancy. But if we are going to mature in our faith, our prayers must also move beyond just that. Not just asking for stuff, not just seeking a blessing, but openly, honestly, and steadfastly engaging the Holy One of Heaven. I mean, that's what this is about. It's the wrestling through with God. It's the struggling with the Almighty. It's urgently and persistently getting after the Lord and refusing to let go until the divine gives his answer. That's what it was for Jacob. That's what it should have been for these apostles. That's what it can be for you. We would have such faith in Christ and his power that we would always in all things make our appeal to him.
Do you see? We don't believe enough in Christ's power. We don't marvel enough at Christ's power. We don't appeal enough to Christ's power. And yet, we are sure going to need to employ Christ's power. Because as we see in verse 22, Christ is not long for this earth. While they were still gathered together in Galilee, that's what Jesus told the disciples. He said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved to hear that. Now on the surface, this may seem like an odd place for Matthew to include this kind of saying. Doesn't have much to do with exorcisms. Nor does it go with the next pericope that talks about paying the two drachma tax. Is this just a disconnected, random aside that Matthew had no other place for but to put here? Well, no, not at all. On the heels of this faith failure, when the disciples proved inept and unable to do what Christ had commanded, Jesus says to them, look, guys, You've got to get your act together on this stuff. You've got to bolster your belief because I'm not going to be with you forever. In fact, it was one of the rhetorical questions that Jesus asked in the midst of his earlier frustration. After referring to them as an unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus asked them, how long shall I continue to be with you? Well, the answer, not very long. Because he's about to be delivered into the hands of men and made to depart from this earth. And when he does, who's going to carry the torch? Who's going to give right testimony? Who's going to put the power of Christ on display for everyone out there to see? If the answer is not you and you and you and me, then I think we have a problem. It is time, friends, For every believer in this room to lay hold of Christ's power and unleash it. I I know some have been part of the church since infancy. I know some would claim to be saved for 60 or 70 years. But friends, it is time to get on with it. No longer just feeding off the milk, but progressing to the meat. No longer just content to sit. Time to take a stand. No longer time to stay quiet. It's time to open your mouth and proclaim. Because I don't know if any of you have taken notice (laughs) 
but the world is in desperate need for the power of Christ. And it's not getting any better. It is time to get on with it. Like these apostles, we can't be floundering about in the valley, insecure, uncertain, doubting if Christ can really do. Christ can do. Do you have faith enough to believe him for it? That's the question this morning. And I pray that we would, lest we miss out, lest the world miss out on the greatness and glory of our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, and we admit to you, we have doubts and uncertainties, too many to count each day. Lord, we've said with our hearts and our voices, you are the Christ and we believe and we want to follow, but then we stumble around and we fail to do the things that you've given us to do. And for that, we are sorry. Lord, I pray that you would help to move us from a place of immaturity to a place of strength, certainty, Lord, where we take our stand finally for you because this world needs it. The church, so-called, needs it. And you are fully capable. We just got to believe you. I pray that we would grow our faith, strengthen our resolve, Help us to see you in all your power, in all your splendor and respond accordingly to the glory of God. Thank you. Continue to be exalted in our midst and in our lives, we pray. Amen and amen. trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 